Welcome to a Business Journals podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Noto, and today's episode features celebrity chef Ed Brown. You might have seen him compete on Iron Chef or as a judge on Beat Bobby Flay. More impressive is his three-decade career. The Michelin star winner has cooked for kings and presidents. He's an author, a senior VP at a billion-dollar restaurant company, and has been head chef at some of New York's most famous kitchens. Chef Ed also isn't one to mince words. He discusses in great detail his failures and the lessons he's learned, and why the restaurant industry has changed its Wild West ways for the better, and how today's business leaders would be wise to borrow from his recipe for success. We're here with Chef Ed Brown. How are you today, sir? Terrific, thank you. How is uh, the day? Busy? The days are always busy, and especially when I'm in New York, which is unfortunately not frequently enough, although I live here and our office is here, um, very often on the road. We're in 20 different states across the country uh, and in Canada as well now, so uh, it certainly keeps me busy. How often do you travel? Um, I could be on the road at any time or at least a couple days of the week, sometimes for five, six, seven days in a row. What's, what does the average day look like? So, you know, my role has changed. Uh, you know, once you become the doctor who runs the hospital, you're still a doctor, <laughs> right. but you run a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Right? So now that I'm president uh, of my group, uh, I'm still a chef, but I run a company. And, you know, I still will cook at events, uh, media, special things, um, you know, for different clients occasionally. I do wear my chef coat uh, every day for the two weeks of the U.S. Open where not only does our team do a big part of the work there, but uh, I also have a restaurant there on the premium level called Aces. Is that Aces? Aces, Aces yeah, right? Aces by Ed Brown. Okay. And so uh, that's sort of my summer camp, uh, which I've just come off of and I'm still uh, recuperating. Um, but you know, my day-to-day really is very uh, diverse because anything from client meetings to tastings to interviewing potential people to work for us at high level, um, to getting around, you know, we do uh, a quarterly business review with every one of our clients. So I could be anywhere in the country having one of those meetings with our clients, uh, checking in on business. Sometimes when business isn't going perfectly, be there to troubleshoot and meet with the team on the ground. Uh, it changes every day, which I really like. But do you miss the, the cooking aspect of it? You know, I don't because I have my chef coats in my car, <laughs> in my home in my office and probably in some of the more major kitchens around the country there's one in there somewhere that if I feel like putting it on and cook I do Um, but you know I cooked for a long time I really ran kitchens on a day-to-day basis for a very long time probably about 30 years and you know this part is also very interesting to me running the business and running the business from a perspective of a chef chefs are you know successful chefs and that doesn't mean you made a lot of money. It means you've done a good job. A successful chef uh, is a very organized and orderly person. And that comes in handy uh, running a company. Um, and it comes in handy to be organized. You have no choice but to be organized in the kitchen because you cannot serve 400 people by yourself. Right. If you can't have a team and have instructed them all what to do and how to work together as one, you'll never make it. And you know, luckily, I figured that out a long time ago, and I made it for a long time like that, and I've taken those same skills and brought them uh, to my job today. 
you know, we say that we're a culture of food and hospitality. We say that uh, we're a chef-driven company. And literally, uh, for the first time ever, we're actually a chef-driven company. Uh, the company split into two parts. There's the managed services part, mm-hmm. and there's the restaurant services part. Okay. Uh, both parts, I'm the restaurant services group, both parts are run by people who were chefs their whole career. So we are literally a chef-driven company. So for the folks listening at home or on the go, uh, walk them through um, the company. How did it form? Mm-hmm. When did it start? What, what's the name? Right. So Restaurant Associates uh, began uh, back in the 50s or so. Um, we've had, you know, back in those days, they had consultants like uh, Julia Child, James Beard. Um, one of the first on the map sort of places that they had was the Newarker restaurant at Newark Airport. Oh. And it was a fine dining, white tablecloth restaurant that really was all the rage. In Newark Airport? In Newark Airport, yeah. And uh, over the years, they built restaurants, uh, and they built a lot of restaurants that you would know, like Tavern on the Green, the original uh, Rainbow, uh, Rainbow, uh, Rainbow Room. Mm. Um, at NBC. Well, it wasn't NBC then, but yes, um, Rockefeller Center. And uh, you've got places like uh, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars and uh, Trotteria. Uh, Our company originally opened Four Seasons Restaurant as well, uh, the original Four Seasons Restaurant. So that was their early period. Then they started to uh, come to the next generation when uh, the then vice president of the company became the CEO. Around that time, I joined the company in 1990, okay. and it was sort of the next generation of creating restaurants for the company, and I opened a restaurant called Tropica in the then Pan Am, now MetLife building, oh, wow. uh, and it was a uh, sort of Floribian seafood restaurant, which really only meant that we used fish from all over the world, and Floribian in that we use a lot of bold colors and flavors and we weren't shackled to, you know, we're this. Right. We were a seafood restaurant that could be exciting. And in the 90s, that was, it was ahead of its time. It was new. At that time, there was maybe three only seafood restaurants in New York. Now they're everywhere. But there yeah. weren't all those restaurants then. Uh, you know, every restaurant would serve some fish. Yeah. There were steakhouses. There were American restaurants, Italian restaurants. Seafood restaurants, there were very few. So it was a big deal, and it was a very successful restaurant. Uh, and we continued on building on new restaurants. And during those years, we also moved towards the side of B&I, which is business and institutions. And that's things like executive dining rooms were big. We worked with some of the largest financial firms in the world, which are all here mostly in New yeah, York, yeah. feeding their elite. And it was not about being elitist. It was about these guys and women had to have lunches with the likes of heads of state, Hmm. Uh, princes and kings, in fact. Uh, you cooked for kings? Oh, yeah. And uh, they didn't want to go to a public restaurant. <laughs> so they basically built a restaurant in the sky in all of these towers of all these big bank names that you would certainly know. And uh, we sort of moved into that business. And then while we're feeding their executives, why couldn't we feed their staff cafes? Because back in those days, a staff cafe was like, yeah. We provide food. It's, you know, yeah. you don't want to bring anybody there. Right. 
we really reinvented the way that uh, you could feed the associates of the company. And we opened up cafes, uh, really never called them cafeterias. We always called them cafes. These are cafes that had stations of live chef making sushi in front of you, a wood-burning oven where a guy's making pizza in front of you. These were awesome places. Yeah. And it really was the precursor to food halls, right? Today, you take any one of those stations, expand it and put it on its own, put five of them in a room and you have a food hall. Yeah, it's, right? a, it's very hip now to have that. Exactly. Yeah. So that was really our, our trademark moving forward along with our public restaurants. Um, and then at a certain point, I, ran, I really spent most of my time based uh, for several years at uh, Rockefeller Center. And I ran the uh, Sea Grill restaurant and then all the restaurants there. Uh, which is obviously the center of the universe of Christmas. Yes. Where we have the ice skating rink and the tree. It's the Mecca for <laughs> the, Christmas. It's the Mecca of Christmas. <laughs> and I was just with someone earlier today who used to work there on the landlord side. And it was funny that we both have the same speak. It was like, how long did you work there? I worked there 15 trees. He worked there 23 trees. Oh, how interesting. So we look at it, you know, not in years, but in trees. How many trees <laughs> have you seen come and gone? Um, but it was an exciting time for us. Um, and then we got acquired by our parent company, Compass. Uh, this is a great business story because Compass is the largest food service company in the world. Um, and we're, you know, at the time, not a very big company. Uh, Compass acquires us, and the brilliance of Compass is that, you know, if you look at our competitors, they all live under the same banner, mm. X or Y, right? In Compass, people don't really people outside the industry don't even know who Compass is, and that's yeah. exactly how they want it. Well, who's in charge of Compass? So Compass is run by the executive team of Compass, but but their job is is to acquire companies like ours, and you guys keep doing what it is you do. You have a brand, keep trading under that brand, keep on delivering the service that you have. They don't interfere at all. They don't interfere at all, and what they do is give you all the capital and resources to grow much faster than we could ever generate and grow for ourselves okay so because um, usually it's the opposite that uh, you get a big acquirer well, well that's, and then they get that, their fingerprints that's, on everything you know that's that's really the way of some of our competitors yeah that they're all you know it's a this account it's never really called a compass account there's ra and under the compass banner here in in north america there's somewhere and it's changing by the minute you know between 15 and 20 top brands uh -huh. like Chartwell's, Flick, Urest, Restaurant Associates. And we were, you know, a few hundred million dollar company. And this year we hit $1 billion in, 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 in revenue. revenue. And we're the smallest sector inside of Compass North America. Uh, and we're, we're proud to be a premium brand for them. Um, so, but times are, are changing a bit, you know, uh, running generally, running public restaurants is difficult. Very uh, difficult. It's difficult. It's never. First of all, it's never been easy. I've owned my own. There was a period where I left the company and owned some of my own restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, but has it has? Are the challenges the same, or has it gotten worse? Walk us walk us through what, what makes it so difficult so the, now. The challenges that are the same is that you know it's a live show, if you will. Yeah. Every minute of every day and every night, and so you know. Shit happens in live shows all the time. Yeah. And how the show must go on. Show has to go on. How fast can you recover and how fast can you move on? And the work is intense and the work is just plain hard. 
and the hours are hard. That part hasn't changed. It's still difficult in that way. The new part is, is that it's just much harder to make money. You know, it used to be, if you really did a great job and kill yourself, you'll make a few bucks, you'll do okay. Today it's very hard because uh, between level of wage, not that I'm against it, but the level of wage, uh, permits, taxes, there's so many people saying, give me my piece, give me my piece, give me my piece, and a lot of them are government agencies, to be honest. Um, And the cost of everything has risen uh, exponentially because those providers all have that same problem. And I, but I think of rent too. There's so many great restaurants in New York that closed down because you know, of rent. Uh, New York, Los Angeles. I mean, just so hard for that reason. What do you recommend? Do should people go explore other smaller towns and other places? Well, I, and I think that they are. I think uh, I love when I go to a small town. You know, the thing that I have found as much as I travel is that there is great food everywhere you just have to look a little harder mm-hmm. in new york it finds you immediately in yeah. your face but you know uh asheville south carolina outstanding food team places in the middle of nowhere outstanding food town love it going there um any yeah. recommendations from Asheville? uh curate curate yeah c-u-r-a-t-e curate and uh it's it's a husband and wife team who had worked for uh, ferran adria in spain and they're just knocking it out of the park. But here's the thing. Even if you're going to be in New York, the one thing I don't suggest to anyone, I, I'm, first of all, I think people are done with white tablecloth ceremony restaurants where people wear tuxedos and, you know, bow and say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. <laughs> I think that's finished. Yeah. I think people want great food first. They want to be treated really well, and it needs to be a fair price. Fair price does not mean cheap. It just means fair price. Right, so I can go to, I can tell you 10 restaurants that we could go to right now and find something that costs $100, and I could take you to 10 places after that that are cool and fun, have the same food, if not even better, that costs you $65. Yeah. You know, so the, overpriced meals are also an issue. Overpriced or priced incorrectly, uh, and that you're paying more for a show than for, for the substance. And I think the value of the substance today is more than it's ever been. Mm. It used to be how to be the entire package of the gilded lily and the silver and the china and the ba 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 and thirty you know thirty servers on the floor and four captains and a maitre d. Nobody can sustain that today. Mm. I, I can't think of one that does. Well, how do you? Let's go back to how do you prepare a meal if that's what they're doing for regular folks in New York. How do you prepare a meal for a king or someone who is so high-ranking, a, a, a diplomat, politician, something like so, that? So, you, you got to bring out the show, right? Do you roll well, out a show for in, them? In some cases, yes. In other cases, they are the most appreciative of leave me alone, give me an amazing, perfect ingredient cooked expertly, and let me just enjoy my meal. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah. Some want the show. Um, but I'd say that, you know, more often these people are traveling and eating for work or to be entertained so often that they appreciate the most perfect piece of fish cooked simply with some great vegetables, maybe a special wine, uh, but like in and out. You tell them everything they need to know and only as much as the guest wants to be engaged. 
I have guests who want to be engaged, and so you do. Yeah. But I never want to impose, uh, overimpose our hospitality on guests, thinking that you're going to have a better time because I'm going to end up talking to your table for right, 15 right, right. minutes. Some people are like, listen, can you get out of here? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, no. I'm, I'm rough enough to say that. But I ha- we had that experience in California recently. A, a waiter just we had, just kept chatting away, and, and the family was together. We were like, when is this guy going to shut up? <laughs> I mean, listen, that, as I say, you know, some of these waiters are actors. Yeah. And I often tell them, try acting like a waiter. This one was an, a former <laughs> investment banker. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> But the fact that you even know that is a problem. I don't need to know that, right? <laughs> yeah. What I need and I know you to when he got me, fired, too. I know his whole story. What I need you to tell me is in what way can you enhance my experience in this restaurant for myself and my guests? Yeah. You know, I, not to be rude or anything, but I really don't need to know about you unless I want to engage you. And sometimes I have. I have engaged people who seem very interesting. I might have even said, tell me about yourself. You seem like an interesting person. Or, you know, again, it's not to be rude, but sometimes I just want perfect meal, and that meal will be you giving me the information I need to have a great experience and yeah. letting us have that meal. But what's the homework that you do ahead of time to figure out what kind of a menu would be fit for the president or, or a king or, so, or someone of that caliber? So those are the easiest because they all have front teams that are going to tell you Okay. what the expectations are or the likes and dislikes might be. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a story that you told about uh, crab cakes, that you had a heads up that President Clinton liked crab cakes mm-hmm. and you whipped together a classic meal with crab cakes at the last minute. Yeah. He, he's a relatively simple guy, but he loves to eat. Yeah. Uh, crab cakes is something that's always been in my repertoire forever. Uh, he used to come to Rock Center fairly often, but never announced. Uh, he was one of those people like to pop in, and I guess maybe that's a security thing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it wasn't on the menu in that restaurant, but he's showing up. And I know that he <laughs> likes my crab cakes, and yeah. so crab cakes it was going to be. Okay. And, and, there were the, and we made it for him, and he loved them. And, you know, he, he, was, a, he was a great, uh, when he was more visible in New York City, was a great... Uh, a great customer and supporter of the restaurants in New York. Yeah. Well, who was a, a bad client? Would you be able to talk about like a nightmare client situation? Mm. Nightmare clients. Uh, but you just like, well, glad that meal is over. <laughs> not so much, uh, not so much meals or sometimes they're the small events, right? So we'll have maybe CEO of a financial firm having dinner with maybe the Fed chairman or some somebody. There's a reason that they're having a business dinner, but it's also friendly. They also want to have a nice dinner. Yeah, yeah. They're the easiest part. The hardest part are their handlers. Really? Right? Because their handlers are all vying to be sure that their boss is, happy. is the happiest. Yeah. Right? That may not be what makes the best dynamic in that room. That may not be the best thing for the meal. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, I find myself in this position, and I learned this from one of my mentors, is, you know, stop assuming, if you work for me, stop assuming you think that I'm so particular that I have to only have water served in green bottles. Otherwise, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, tear down the walls and fire everybody until you find it. Right, right, right. It's, it's crap, you know? So sometimes people go way overboard because that's what they think has to be done. When all the guy wants is, uh, yeah, I like flat water and I like it to be room temperature. Okay. 
Um, well, you, you mentioned mentors. Who are your mentors? Uh, I've had many. Uh, one, of the, one of the early ones was a chef named Christian, his name, sorry, uh, Christian Delouvrier. Christian Delouvrier, uh, most notably, uh, I worked for him at the uh, Parker Meridian Hotel yeah. in the early 80s. Uh, during that time, it was a very French time in New York, and so if you were a real restaurant, it was a French restaurant, and probably presided over as a consultant by a big-name French chef from France, and that was the case for us. It was a chef named Alain Sanderance from Paris, at that time voted one of the top one or two restaurants uh, in Paris called Luca Carton, and he was the consulting chef. I was working for Christian. Was there for a few years when Sandorans invited me to go work in Paris, uh, and at that time, also one of my uh, uh, mentors at the time was Pierre Frenet. Pierre Frenet was one of the first to have actually, outside of Julia Child, and uh, yeah, probably outside Julia Child, one of the first chefs to really have a cooking show, uh, and he also was the author of the original 60-minute gourmet, which still exists today. Uh, in the New York Times mm. uh, and he used to do that in conjunction with Craig Claiborne of, of restaurant reviewing fame uh, and he, he sort of was the, the literary world's uh, eyes to the industry back in those days he sort of took me under his wing as well and he said you know you go and do this thing in Paris and when you return you help Christian make his third star because they hadn't had it yet yeah. and in those days it was you were all, it's all about New York Times stars. Uh, well, do you think it's still about that? No. I used to live and die. I used to, I forget, it came out on Friday, Thursday nights at 10 p.m. We'd go to the New York Times building when it was on 43rd or whatever. We'd wait outside for them to throw that first bundle out the back door to get the paper that you could buy an advanced copy. Wow. And, and like rip through it to the food section find out who got the review. Because you make it or break it on those reviews, yeah. Especially when you know that you are up, you know, you know that, you know that you either you've spotted the reviewer a couple of times in your restaurant, or they have to call a fact check anyway. As you know, as a journalist, they have to call a fact check anyway within ten days of the review. You know it's coming, and yeah. often they'll tell you it's going to be this Friday or next Friday, whatever. So uh, it was all about that. I haven't looked you know, on a regular basis at the food section of any paper in years. Because <laughs> it just, yeah, it's nice and it matters. You know, when somebody like Florence Fabricant writes about me, it's important. Yeah. You know, uh, and I don't mean to get mixed up, but, you know, we had this great article recently in the Times that Florence wrote, uh, and she talked about the arc of our, where we started, where we went, and where we are and where we're going. And the funny part is, is that Florence at 80 something years old has written about every part of that arc from there wow. to there. So it was really a nice thing. And you know, we- She encapsulated the, the, the story. She encapsulated the, the, a lot yeah, of it. The journey. Uh, she, she did. And, and the interview was with uh, myself and our CEO who was part of the days back to the Newarker. Okay. So, you know, here's like, the person who's, who's chronicled the whole thing, 
one of the guys who started the whole thing, and here's the guy who's been here halfway through the show, and it's my job to go to the next part of the show and to continue the legacy to be as great as the one that's been left to me. Okay. And that's, that's really my biggest mission today is how am I going to make, uh, you know, my piece of the company shine going forward that somebody one day is going to talk to your protege and have a story about why is this, why, why is this company great today because what was happened in the past. And I, 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 I hope want so. to be part of that. Sure, I mean, <laughs> journalism is, is a completely different industry. I mean, people need food, but it seems like people are sort of ignoring well, they need journalists content. in a way. I don't know. I, I don't agree. I think they need content and they, they need believable content from trusted sources. Yeah. And so, yeah, any asshole can write whatever he wants, which I really despise, <laughs> to be honest with yeah, you. me too. But, but you know, uh, whether it's digital, it doesn't have to be in print anymore. When you have a, a true journalist who, who reports and accurately reports a story, even if he mixes a little opinion in there... I'd love to read that. Well, did you ever get really pissed off at like a, a review of a of a restaurant that yes. you were like, "This is they yes. don't they don't get it." They just Listen, didn't. Personally, get it. as a chef, I've been reviewed in the New York Times more than ten times. Okay. Some people go that once in their whole life, and maybe even twice if you're a busy guy. I've been reviewed by New York Times ten times. Some were much better than others. Um, some made me very angry. Uh, I can tell you that uh, in the years, New York Magazine used to be a very strong review as well. That was right up there with New York Times, New York Magazine, and the Zagat Guide. Yeah. Right? New York Magazine, after Gail Green left, uh, they had a series of other writers, and I'm not going to point out which writer. There's one in particular, he just really... Come on, bug the crap out of me. I just was not a fan of his writing. Uh, and I, I didn't think, I didn't feel, and I don't know the person. I don't know him as a person, so I could be wrong. But through his writing, I didn't feel that this person knew anything about food. Mm. And uh, it was more about making a story that might have a happy ending, which is great for the restaurant. But very often it didn't have a happy ending because it made for a good story. But it was crap for the restaurant, which I think right. was really unfair. It was not a, I didn't think it was a reporting of what you saw there. It was you deciding what you thought was going on. Yeah. And so, uh, so I don't miss that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've read a lot of stuff where I'm just reading it thinking, you know, you don't realize what you're saying about somebody who's practiced their craft their whole life. And you're just taking pot shots at it as somebody who's just sitting in a restaurant. You have no clue what it takes for that guy to even be in that position and I don't mean every single one but when I've read reviews about colleagues who I know well and I know that they are true craftspeople uh, and that they do know what they're doing and they're professionals it, it does it does get under my skin a little bit when I see people write ill of that one I don't think they really got it well do you think like it's almost like critics who uh, write about write disparagingly about actors or writers when they've never done the craft themselves. Is it similar? Like I'll do a lot of these inspectors from the, the super secretive Michelin group. Mm-hmm. Are, are they even chefs themselves? I mean, I know no, that I they were held in high regard at right. one point. I would say that that's one of the more accurate ones and that they are absolutely anonymous. The Michelin inspectors. The Michelin inspectors. Uh, and I, you know, lucky enough to 
you know, in the first year that I opened my own restaurant, uh, I opened a luxury restaurant at the time the world was falling apart, but it's another story. Um, I was lucky enough to, uh, to win a Michelin star. And that was very important to me because... Well, okay. Uh, it was very important to me because, because it, it is accurate. And if I look at, and yeah, it's easy for me to say because I got one, but if I look at the list of those who have, there's not one that I can say, oh, that's crap. Yeah. No, they're, it, they're all legit. Is it like winning the Oscar for a chef? Yes. Great analogy. But now, so you said you had to go and, and work with Christian and help him get right. a start? So, so the deal was go to Paris, come back, come back to the Parker Meridian at the Maurice restaurant, it was called, and help him win his third star. And when you do that, Pierre Franny said, I will, because in those days, he could just anoint you to go. Yeah. He's going to be your new chef, this guy. So uh, I came back. We miraculously made the three third star like five months later. What was the reaction that day when you made it? Uh, it was an absolute champagne popping <laughs> frenzy. It was a big deal. It's yeah. a really, really big deal. So we made the third star. Pierre Franny kept his promise and actually installed me as the chef of a small little French restaurant, also in Midtown, just down the street from the Maurice, and that was called Marie Michel. And I stayed there for a few years, and that was one of the best lessons that I took forward with me as how to be a chef and a business person. It was a French woman, former Chanel model, and basically we had, I don't know, 60 or 70 seats. I did everything from order the food, cook the food, run the team, run the staff, order the guy to come and shampoo the carpet, order the toilet paper, and everything in between except you know, run the accountant who did their job. And so it was a great experience for me that I had to really sort of run the whole show, uh, and, and I took that forward with me. And what was the name of the restaurant? That you... Marie Michel. Marie Michel. Which doesn't exist any longer. Um, what happened? Uh, about a year and a half after I left, it just didn't happen anymore. Did, did the right person not take I over? I don't think that they found the right person to step in and take over. I think she might have lost some interest. Uh, she ended up uh, moving to Florida and having a whole other restaurant career with a very casual restaurant uh, in Naples, Florida, and found her retirement. Okay. So, you know, good for her. Um, but did you get the opportunity to, um, like you said, you, somebody anointed you to take over a restaurant. Did, did you get that opportunity to figure out how you wanted to transition to another person? No. So, you know, I was the chef of the restaurant, and... Uh, I was actually poached by Restaurant Associates okay. to go to that job. And so that's how I made that move. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure how they went about trying to find the next chef. Um, so obviously it, it didn't work out, but uh, my time there was great. And then I joined the company um, and I was in the company for... Uh, about four years when I left briefly for one year to open a restaurant called Judson Grill. That's right. I have it written down right here. I'll Judson say. Grills and the Equitable Bill Building. So we basically backed up against La Bernadine in yeah. the same physical space. Uh, That's a historic building too. It's a historic building. It's a historic restaurant building. Uh, and it was, it was fun. I, I, you know, I, it wasn't a good fit for me. I was in a, I had a small piece of a partnership. I was the chef of the place, but I had a small piece of the partnership. 
I wasn't happy there. And so a year later, I came back to Restaurant Associates. What, what didn't make you happy? Just the folks you were working with or the spot or? No, the, the relationship that I had with my partners. Okay. You know, successful people. I can't take that away from them. Didn't work for me. Well, you got to find the right people to gel with in order Absolutely. for magic to happen. Absolutely. Listen, uh, I think if you're going to be partners in a business, especially a restaurant business that's so hands-on and so so many things that have so many variables that, I mean, you need to choose a partner as much as you need to choose a spouse. <laughs> yeah, it's like it being married, right? Yeah. But so now, what leads to a toxic relationship like that? Just the approach to the menu or, or the ingredients, like the style? Approach to the menu, where you're going to spend your money, what you're not going to spend your money on, uh, the amount of team, the right team players, team politics. You know, everybody wants to be the maestro. Yeah. Well, what is it like... Give me an idea as, as to how you are as a, as a maestro. Like, do you, what's your approach? What do you think money should go and, and what, what an approach should be in each scenario? So I think that one of my strengths and the people who have worked with me will tell you that is I'm very good at putting good people together and surrounding myself with good people. The one thing I've always known is that a team wins a game and a star can't. There have been baseball teams like the Yankees in some years where you've had every major superstar. If you named up the first lineup, you know every single one of them today from that many years ago. Right. They couldn't win as a team because they didn't play as a team. They played as stars. And when you get a group of talented people together who work as a team, they're unbeatable. Unbeatable when you put all that together. Yeah. And, you know, I've been trying to do that forever. And in this sort of second half of my game here, of my career you know it's coming back I've got people coming back with me now that started with me you know in 94 who worked for me for five six years went off and did many other things and I'm bringing them back in 2017 because the the relationship is still good because I keep all those relationships alive and I famously tell stories of you know I meet some people who I thought are good candidates to join us and couldn't find the right thing but I said listen we're gonna stay in touch because you never know. And that's very often a throwaway bullshit line, but I actually do. And I'll be sure that I talk to those people a couple times a year. And I got a million stories of, I talked to this guy for the first time three and a half years ago. Today he's one of our supervising chefs at a very high level. Because I knew he was a good person. I just had to find the right spot. And I'm not gonna hire him just to hire him. It wouldn't be good for him nor for us. And so it's a big investment in my time but I can't think of a much better one than that, right? Because I'm not the guy doing the everyday cooking. And when I was, I spent all my time, I used to spend more than 50% of my time procuring the best ingredients I could find anywhere. Because that was my job, was to cook the food, so I gotta find the best possible ingredients that's worth all my time. Where, where, where did you go for those to make sure that, that the best ingredients ended up on you know, the table? It would, be, it would be, and especially since I've always run seafood restaurants, I'd be in touch with people all over the world. I was getting fish from the Amazon. I was getting fish from Hawaii, getting fish from the West Coast. I'm getting fish, getting lake trout from a guy just upstate New York oh, wow. who, you know, he gets 30 fish, I'll buy them all. You just gotta, <laughs> you gotta drive them down. Or at times it'd be like, if you meet me halfway, I won't charge you as much to deliver them. Oh, okay. I mean, from the biggest guys to the smallest guys. Uh, I used to work with guys out in Montauk. This is long before all the rules that exist today, but you know, guys who worked out in Montauk who, uh, you know, day boat fishermen, they go out, they catch what they can, and they hope to sell it for as much as they can. They know they'd have a customer in me. Yeah. And so that we had a guy who'd go out there with an ice chest, 
take it from him at the boat, pay him. It would it would just you know a, a ton of effort. Yeah. It wasn't saving any money. It was just a lot of effort, but nobody had a better fish than me. Right. And so today I'm doing that with people, whether they're managers, chefs, even controllers. I need I need stars in every category, and so that that's my job is to put the best people together and manage them enough where they get as much direction and resource, but enough room for them to do what they do best. Yeah. And now, um, for every, I mean, obviously it sounds like there's such wonderful stories with you and the, the people you brought in and worked with over the years, but being a chef, there's also so many stories, millions of stories of just the, the horror that people undergo in the, in the, in the kitchen of uh, yelling and screaming and that sort of thing. Have you ever been on the receiving end or Absolutely. have you ever been the one to dish it out? 100%. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so when I started was back in the days that it was the Wild West. Anything goes. You could still throw stuff at people. Yeah. You could still scream at people. You could berate them on a personal level. And that, all of that was done to me. Um, in different places by guys that you liked or was that was did you some yes some no and you know the funny part was is that through all of that in some of the cases like listen one of my best mentors was Christian Delouvrier he was one of the worst a guy who was an absolute animal in the kitchen Uh, he was rough but his food was amazing and he had a huge heart he thought that it was necessary to apply that sort of forceful discipline to get the job done. But what, what would drive him crazy? What would piss him off? <laughs> you know, I don't think any of us ever figured out what would, what, what would spark him off, but it didn't take much. And one little thing, and it would just roll into anything he saw. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, he's annoyed about something. And as he looks to the left and sees that bottle cap, now that bottle cap, and why is that bottle cap? You know, whatever that could be. And, you know, take your things and flip it upside down and throw it in the garbage. Oh, and, wow. Um, but he did, have, he did have a good heart. Uh, I, I love the man like a brother today. And I learned so much about cooking from him. But I tell him to his face, I also learn from him as a manager things that I'll never do. Right. You showed me things that I know I should never do. And I learned that. Maybe the hard way. Maybe those are the best teachers, the ones that teach us what not to do. Exactly. So, you know, there was learning in every corner, and so that was okay. Then there was guys who were just complete assholes, and, you know, they thought that they're supposed to act like an idiot and would throw things around and really berate people on a personal level, and, and that's just wrong. Fast forward into the time when I became a chef. So at one point, I was the youngest chef in New York City. So when I came back from Paris, made the stars, and then became the chef of Marie Michel Restaurant, I was just 23 years old. Oh, wow. Which doesn't sound like a big deal today, uh, but then I was the youngest chef, and probably the next one was well into his 30s. And what year was, was Marie Michel? Hmm. So, uh, I don't know, do the math. I yeah. was born in uh, 63. Okay. 27, uh, 23 years later. Um, and... Uh, and so I walked into a kitchen of, uh, you know, the restaurant had been open six months before I got there. There was a French chef. There was one guy and there was uh, 
four Hispanic gentlemen and one Chinese fellow. That was his team. They were workers. Right. I get there. I'm coming from a very high elevated French kitchen where everybody looked like me and our whole life was to try to become a chef. Yeah. Every one of those guys went on to be chefs pretty much. Here, they're workers, very skilled cooks um, and terrific people. Um, but it was a different setup. Yeah. So I get there and I figure, okay, the one thing that I assessed immediately was that these people are going to need to respect me for me to make this work. And oh, thank you. Very and that much. wasn't going to happen just because I or anybody else said so. And so what I got to doing right away was I'd be the one cooking the hardest. I'd be, because it was a working chef position. It wasn't like, you know, just order people around. It wasn't yeah. a big place. It was very small. Right. So you know, I'm working shoulder to shoulder with them. I'm cooking the hardest. I'm showing up the earliest. I'm leaving the latest. At cleanup time, I'm not walking away from them and leaving it to them. I'm the one helping to scrub the floor. I'm the one... On my day off, I came in, and you're surprised to see me. I came in to paint the wall because it looks dirty to me. Oh, wow. You know, these guys just became my family. One of the best teams I ever worked with in my entire career. Tremendous people, tremendous craftsmen uh, who, you know, that team spirit brought everybody together. And you, You're almost like, like the captain. Like yes. You, yeah. That's 100% being the captain. And when you show that leadership then it works. But nobody's going to follow you just because you say so. I, I, I live by the rule of nobody does what I say because I say so. I would hope that they do what I say because they believe in me and follow my example of what I think should be done. And I'm always open to hearing comments, criticisms, other ideas. Doesn't mean I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say, okay, thanks. But no thanks. Or that's a good point. All right, guys, let's look at this. You know, Johnny brings this point to us. Let's start doing the this dish that way. Try this. Show it to me a couple of times and let's see what happens. Ends up a winner. That guy now feels like a rock star and everybody's part of it. Yeah. You know, that's not, that's not how it was in my time. In my time, you stay just, in your lane. Right. Stay in your lane. Do as I say. Do as I say and that's it. But now when you, if you were to make those decisions like, okay, we tried it this way, but we're, we're going to stick with this and somebody doesn't listen, what would really piss you off in the kitchen? Yeah, what really pissed me off is uh, people who are not following direction, people who know there's nothing worse than somebody who does something poorly that you know that person knows how to do it well. Yeah. means you just, you don't care today. And we don't have that luxury of not caring ever. We have to be on every day. The curtain comes up, it's a show. And, and in fact, when I opened Tropica, it was an open, re open kitchen. Yeah. One of the first of its kind. Do you like that model? I, I, I do and I don't. Uh, I do in that uh, it's nice to see the dining room and what's happening and you're really part of the atmosphere of the restaurant. Right. But there are tense moments in the kitchen. Yeah. And I, so I'm famously <laughs> facing the other way when I'm speaking firmly. Right, Firmly right, right. is a nice way of saying screaming. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the transition from Judson Grill to Sea Grill. Yeah. Um, so I came, you know, I, I ended that partnership, and uh, Restaurant Associates was uh, very supportive and asking me to come back right away. And I came to the Sea Grill, uh, where I took over that restaurant, and then eventually took over the restaurants of the complex and was overseeing the complex. And that was a great run. I mean, that was, uh, 
How long was that run for? I was there 15 trees. <laughs> so about 14 and a half years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I really learned a lot there and running a high volume restaurant at, at quality level. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing there, though, it was all about building a team. You know, that was that was a an important moment in my career because I was cooking great food, and I was really working my ass off. And that's the the late '90s to early 2000s. Yep. Yeah. And then from there, '81. Um, so from there, so just before I not just but prior to my leaving, we had been acquired by Compass. Oh, okay. And also prior to my leaving, this gets a little confusing. Our then CEO, you know, Compass didn't love the public restaurant part. Margins are low, we talked about that. They're used to being the food service business that has good margins and, yeah. or, or they just don't do that piece of business. They only do business where they can make money, right. or at least then. Um, so our CEO said, you know what, you guys aren't so happy with us with the restaurant part. What if I just take that part over here and we become our own company and we'll see you later? And he did. And Seagrill was part of that, so I stayed with them. That's, they became the Patina Group. Okay. Uh, because our CEO joined up with Joachim Splishal from California, had a restaurant, famous restaurant called Patina, and uh, also had many other restaurants in California. And they became the Patina Group, of which I was part of, until I left to open 81. And so I left to open 81, uh, uh, got, uh, got a Michelin star, and a couple of New York Times stars uh, right away. Uh, we had great critical acclaim, but it was about the time of uh, you know major financial crisis right. in this country. And I had invested a lot of money, all of which I raised myself. I basically put together a great business plan, started taking meetings with every, you know, you can imagine the people I've served at my tables over the year, over the years, were high-powered, wealthy individuals. Did you, is, are these the people you hit up? For yeah, funds, yes, and must have I, been pretty easy. No, it was easy in, in in that they were all believers. Right, that's what I meant. And you know, I usually by the and it usually was it would be a meal, maybe a short meeting, and then a second meeting would be a meal together, right? Talking and exploring, and usually by the end of that meal, so you, you, know, you like what you have, and you can well sponsor me. Well, actually, you know? by the end of the meal, I would turned to my mode of almost trying to talk him out of it. <laughs> Why? Because I wanted to be sure that I couldn't talk him out of it, to be sure that they were going to... I really respected the fact that people were going to give me their hard-earned money. I don't care how rich you are. Any amount of money you give me and you're putting at risk, and I'm telling you, you're at risk, you may never get this back. Forget about make money, you may never get this back. I want to be sure that we're clear. I want to be sure that you're you're on board yeah. and that you're interested and you believe in that we're going to do something great and it may make money. And so, you know, my famous line is, if I can't talk you out of it, we got a deal. And we got a deal. That's, and, that's, I only, that's, and I only talked one guy out of it and I had 32 investors. I raised several million dollars. Okay. And I felt very responsible about that, uh, as I should. And, uh, you know, we did a great job. We built a beautiful restaurant. 
in a rare thing in New York City, in a space that was never a restaurant, so nobody can notice, oh, when this place was Johnny's, it was <laughs> looked like this. Yeah. Nobody ever seen this space. What was the space? The space was a horseshoe on the ground floor of a, a hotel. In the middle block of that horseshoe, where it would be empty space, was a big square, which is the lobby of that hotel. Interesting. So it was like two legs with a big back connector and I did on one side was the entry and bar then the big dining room and the other leg was a private dining space it was beautiful it was a really beautiful space and we got a lot of critical acclaim positive critical acclaim uh, but unfortunately you know we put a lot of effort into selling this as a luxury restaurant people believed it and when the world started tumbling we tried to pull back take away the luxury ingredients. Less caviar, less foie gras, no more truffles. Let's get the prices down. We're doing burgers on Sundays. Okay. You know, really try to loosen it up. But we had done such a good take. job that people didn't really... And, and the problem is that our clientele, they could still afford to come to my restaurant. But it wasn't the thing to do. You know, if you could afford it, you could either not afford it, or if you could, it wasn't the thing to be seen in a place that's being seen as a luxury it's like right. let's all just get modest for a while and keep our heads down yeah and so that meant not really coming to my restaurant so in about the second year of that restaurant i simultaneously opened ed's chowder house which is diagonally across the street and in fact the awnings still say ed's chowder house they've really? never taken them down um and that restaurant ran for several years and i didn't i wasn't there on a day-to-day -day. i had a a partnership where i provided my, I provide the chef, the manager, the menus, and I'd be there periodically. So what, what was it about, because it's only a year later, 2009, Edge Chowder House opens. What was it that made that a safer bet? The fact that it was just a, a more affordable meal? It, yes, it was, yes. So there it was appealed no, to more people at the people moment at there the was time. no seafood on the Upper West Side. Uh, I actually credit Gail Green, uh, who is an Upper West Sider. Uh, Gail the, Green? Yeah, the journalist from New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. Uh, or was, uh, who's a who's famously Upper West Sider, uh, said to my the person who invited me to join him as a business partner, said to him, you know, because he, he had built a steakhouse there, and she said, and it wasn't working, and he made a huge investment. She said, you know, what you need there is a seafood restaurant, and if you're going to do a seafood restaurant and it's on the Upper West Side, you should call it Brown. He knew me for 20-something years as well, called me, we spoke, we built that restaurant. And it was very successful for several years. Uh, in the mean, But it wasn't my day-to-day -day job. So when I closed 81, I returned to Restaurant Associates, and I returned to the Restaurant Associates of today, which was not the one I left. Okay. The one I left was Patina Group. It was a different animal altogether. Well, the people running it were part of our original company, so it's not, you know, it's not that I didn't didn't know them it's just they were separate right okay. and so uh, our now CEO Dick Catani uh, you know who had been a good customer at the restaurant when he heard uh, that we were going to close he was my first he was he called me and said listen get your life together get past this I know that's difficult for you I heard you closing when you're ready I'd love to have you back right. and you know is that relationship thing again I you Good relationships go a long way. This guy epitomizes everything I've been talking about, about people. Uh, 
I love working for this guy. He's, you know, he is my present day mentor. Um, you know, I came back to the company as, as the chef innovator of the company. It was a role that didn't exist. You know, what does a chef innovator do? Yeah, he innovates. Dick, Dick said, listen, I want you to come back and I don't know what I want you to do. You, you tell me what you're gonna do. And it grew into this role that we ended up making a name for that was all about adding my influence to the food, uh, the projects, even with clients, being part of sales pitches, motivating chefs, bringing new chefs into the company. It was great, and I did that for 10 years. And then Dick one day asked me, you know, he says to me, uh, we're gonna reorganize the company, and I'm gonna split the businesses into two parts, managed service and restaurant service, and I'd like you to be the president of the restaurant services group. I said, I don't think so, Dick. <laughs> I said, why, you know, I said, I think that I'm, I'm as far away from cooking that I want to be, which was short-sighted at the time. He said, okay. <laughs> he just took it. He's like, okay, fine. Yeah. That's your answer. Got it. And then over time, as I got closer to looking into the business, um, I started participating in another part of the business with Compass, our parent company, as sort of a what I might be doing next thing. And he came back six months later and he said, uh, what do you think about it now? I said, you know what, I think it's the right time. What, what happened in that six months? Well, I, I just, I, I saw that I could really have an influence on where we go next. Uh, you know, my co-president from the other side, a guy named Michael Gallagher, uh, is an amazing operator. And I think that he and I would be great partners. And we get to continue to work for Dick Catani, which, you know, for us is, is the bright star. Mm. So it really, it was exciting to me to be able to start to dig in and be, you know, from making the deals, winning clients, retaining clients. We're either, we're either selling or retaining every minute, somebody, right? So we're selling clients, we're retaining clients, we're refreshing clients, we're... We're doing new programs where I'm bringing, you know, for my part, I'm trying to bring what's the next generation. So, yes, we do a great job, but, you know, we're not the masters of the universe. So I'm going to bring in other masters of the universe who are great at what they do. I'm going to bring in the likes of, you know, Tom Colicchio, Jose Andres, all these people who work with us. But I can call these people on the phone in the Lancer and they'll be willing to work with us because... We, we know each other since we were all in the same position when we were 23 years old. You have a book called The Modern Seafood Cook. Uh, I love this idea. I might buy this book because as an Italian, we, have, we make a big deal out of seafood dinners at Christmas Eve. Sure. So I figured maybe I'll, I'll study up what, what you have Seven to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do you innovate? What, what's innovative in that book? Is it anything or is it so, basic? So that book had very much had a purpose. It was... Uh, Subtitle, New Techniques, New Ease, but it was made for the home cook. Okay. The book came out in like 93, 94. And, you know, that was still the time when people thought, well, cooking fish at home, I don't know how to buy it. I don't want to touch it. I cook it. The place smells. <laughs> you know, that was still the, the reputation of cooking fish at home. So this is, this is a book that not only did I take you know, you don't know what you don't know. So this book took me a couple of years to write. T- 
today I could probably write that same book in like three months. But um, I took a long time. I had a great writer who interviewed me at nauseum, writing on his yellow pad. I wrote every recipe by hand because it was prior to us using computers. I didn't touch a computer until I was 30 years old. Um, and then I got a woman who I knew worked at a cooking school. She lived in a little tiny Upper East Side apartment. And I would have her once a week come to my restaurant and I would give her all the supplies and five recipes. She'd go home in that afternoon after school and she'd prepare all those recipes in her little tiny apartment with whatever she, I said, don't buy any equipment. You gotta use the pans you have, the dishes you have, yeah. the tools you have. Cook these five recipes, that'd be in the afternoon. I go, I go all evening in service and at 10 o'clock, at the end of service, I'm coming to your house, and I'm going to taste those five recipes, and we're going to make adjustments. Okay. So there's 200 recipes. We did them five at a time, and many of them repeated. Okay. Uh, that was a labor of love. Yeah. But, you know, I remember one of the best compliments I got on that book was from Florence Fabrican, actually, who said, you know, all of your colleagues in those days, they were, everybody's knocking out books like they were going out of style. She said, all of your colleagues have these books where the recipes don't work. Your recipes really work. I said, thank you. <laughs> so that was the intent of the book. Okay. Uh, it's out of print today. You can buy it you know, on Amazon or something like that. Like a used copy or something? Yeah, yeah. but just send me a note. I'll happy to send you one. I have, oh, thank I have you very much. Um, well, any other books on the horizon? No, because you know a book is a lot of work, and I wouldn't want to write one just to write one. Uh, I think you want to tell a story, and I... I tell a story throughout this entire book. In fact, I hope that you'll get a chance to read through it. Um, and so I, I, I don't think people read books anymore. And I, you know, they might go to it for a recipe, but I don't think they're gonna take time to read it. And you know, a chef book really is a, a vehicle to help you sell something else. Mm. Sell you coming to my restaurant, sell you buying my kitchen tools, it's just another vehicle to bring you on a TV show or a radio show or get together with somebody like yeah. you uh, to put your name out there. Or in today's role, it's going to be my memoir, and I ain't ready yet. Too young. All right, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then I have to ask you, uh, what food trends uh, impress you now and which ones just you, 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 you can't fathom? So, because New Yorkers have weird eating habits. Yeah. Is there anything you see that you're just like, I don't understand how that caught on, or that's a phase, it's not going to last? or You know, I, I, and I think it's already fading, but, um, you know, where they're using different things to molecular gastronomy. Okay. So molecular gastronomy is already sort of fizzling, but I was really never a fan. I'm, I'm not a big fan of altering food. Uh, I, I like ingredients to be pure and simple and shown off as they are and let them speak. You know, uh, you know, what's an example of that? Making things look like something else. The Impossible Burger. Well, the Impossible Burger serves a purpose, I got to say, actually. So just since you bring that up, that's a modern day uh, example. The Impossible Burger serves a purpose in that people like to taste the burgers. Some people don't eat burgers because they don't eat meat. Some people eat them because for health reasons, although eating an Impossible Burger is not going to help you with that. Mm. But that's another story. Um, but some eat the Impossible Burger because of what it, the, the sustainability story, because raising cows to make beef is one of, one of the harshest things on our planet. Yeah, it's not sustainable. Having said that, I eat beef, disclaimer, I eat beef, 
Uh, I try to eat less beef for all of those reasons, but it has a place, but it's not healthy. Uh, but it does help with obviously for producing less cattle or the need yeah. for producing less cattle. So Impossible Burgers would be a good version of molecular Well, distro- I don't think that that's molecular gastronomy. Molecular okay. gastronomy is when you use things like meat glue to like, you know, put together all these different things. Oh, I see and, what you're saying. Okay. And then cook them in a certain way and then cut it a different way and make it look like an egg. Okay. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, that's yeah. just an exaggerated example. I just, I never like doing that. Uh, I've been to some very famous places in the world where chefs are well known for doing that and had, you know, 22, 23 courses of stuff that I couldn't tell you the next day what one thing was. They were entertaining. Something came out smoking. Something exploded and became powder. Something, you know, it was entertaining. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And these are highly, like mad scientists these, in a way. These are highly lauded places. Yeah. I can tell you every course practically of 10 courses that I ate in an amazing French restaurant in Belgium 30 years ago because it was just food it was pure food and it was so delicious and it was so well prepared and it was so overwhelmingly delicious that I'll never forget me like that <laughs> I love those experiences yeah. um, alright so speaking of other chefs uh, I guess the, I don't know if you would consider them rivals or just you know um contemporaries but um, one is uh, Marco Pierre and we talked about Michelin stars before he gave his back I don't know if that's changed at all in recent years but did you look at that as like some sort of stunt he kind of just kind of disparaged the Michelin rating system right so a few guys have done that Marco Pierre White did that Uh, my former employer Alain Sanderans did that in Paris Uh, you know I guess the idea is that you know, Either they hand too many out, or once they reach that status, they have trouble um, uh, staying some relevant. Would, some or? would say you've got the three Michelin stars, you're afraid to lose them, so you gave them back. Right. Okay? There, but I, I believe that Marco Pierre White, for example, was, was not happy with the system or not happy with... He's a very, un, very unsettled person to begin with, so uh, I think he believed in what he was doing. And there's some who do that. But I think a lot of them, especially the ones, like there's not an example of a guy who went from three to two or even two to one who gave them back, who was just like, you know, uh, okay, I'm taking my toys and going home and I'm going to be a crybaby. Yeah, yeah. You know, nobody wants to lose one. Right. Um, the guys who had three and gave them back, I think in some cases they were afraid to be on the chopping block because you always are. Right. You know, we used to say in New York, there was at one time five maybe four star restaurants uh, it's amazing to get there but once you get there you have to fear every day of losing it yeah so it's a tough position to be in um but even now no, nobody's choosing them by how many stars they have but there was um it's funny bernardo rizzo bernard rizzo bernard loiseau okay bernard loiseau he said that he was haunted when he um Got the mission star. Yeah. Killed himself. It, it, it was haunting for him. When he lost his star, he killed himself. And, uh, you know, I think clearly that's extreme. I was about to say it's a bit <laughs> extreme. That's very extreme. Uh, but I've been on the receiving end of a bad review, and I've been pretty extreme about it, more than I would like to admit or thought I'd ever be. And luckily for me, I had people around me, be it then my wife or uh, others, to support me. Like, 
you're a great chef, we have a great restaurant here, you're a good person, you know, and a couple of days of binge drinking and I'm, and I'm better. But <laughs> <laughs> when I used to do that. But What's uh, your drink of choice? My drink of choice, these days I'm a bourbon drinker and I, I drink it simpler and simpler. It pretty much neat with ice on the side. Which, which bourbon? Uh, my, go-to, my go-to is uh, Woodford. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more and more I'm drinking Bullet mm-hmm. and more and more I'm actually moving to rye because the thing about and I drink a lot of bourbon so the more you have the sweeter it starts to build Yes. and so I'm and I'm not a sweet person like if you told me you could eat all the meat in the world but you can never eat dessert again I could live with that yeah. vice versa not so much <laughs> so uh, I like savory so bullet is more savory, and rye in general is just more savory. And I can find myself enjoying it for a longer period of time before I feel like that oversweet factor. Yeah. Like, I, I can only have one drink. First of all, I don't really... I think I've developed beyond something like Maker's Mark, for example. Right, right, right. But I can't have more than one drink of Maker's Mark, even if that's all they have, because it just tastes sweet to me. Mm. Well, the bullet rye is... Bullet that's, rye that's a go-to for me as it's well. It's a delicious drink. All right, so now let's end it with this. You mentioned uh, karate before as a go-to for uh, uh, in Asheville. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what your bourbon or rye go-to is. I would like to know um, just a few more restaurants that you, that the first ones that come to mind that you recommend. That if anybody listening to this, um, where, what 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 impresses you? Where where should people go? So uh, last week, I was in uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I had an amazing meal, and this is not a new restaurant, and it's a very famous chef, but it's a casual joint. The food was terrific at Haleo, which is one of Jose Andres' restaurants. It was really, really terrific. Uh, Haleo, H-A-L-E-O? J-A-L-E-O, Haleo. Um, And just, you know, I've been in Spain. I spent time with food people in Spain. I could close my eyes. This food brought me right back to Spain. The wow. real deal. Not fancy, not just delicious. Um, every product was just right on. Uh, and then one of my favorites these days, I'm in Chicago every now and then. I love the girl on the goat. Girl on the goat? Yeah. What do they serve? Uh, it's so a lot of goat dishes. Okay. <laughs> Other things as well. Okay. But she does use a lot of goat in her cooking. Stephanie Izzard is the chef who's I think now an iron chef or was an iron chef. Uh, she's a younger generation than me, but fantastic cook, which is the best compliment I can give to a chef. Uh, and she's with a group called the Boca Group and they have several restaurants. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and I know she's opened a few others with them, but Girl on the Goat is a real winner. That's you know, one of my favorites in that city. Um, so we got Chicago, we got uh, DC, we have Asheville. Yeah. Uh, I, I write for New York readers primarily. Where in New York? Uh, in New York, um, you know, I really like going to uh, uh, Nomad. Mm. And so that partnership is really split up between Will Gadara and Daniel Holm, the chef, but Will was a good friend of mine. Uh, but I, I really love that restaurant more than their fancy restaurants and simple dishes there the whole roast chicken mm-hmm. it's just really really delicious food yeah and i'm trying to think of, the name escapes me but there's a restaurant in the beekman hotel all the way downtown tom calicchio's restaurant 
Temple Court. Temple Court. Have you been there? I have not. Outstanding but... restaurant. First of all, Tom's a great chef. Outstanding restaurant. One of the coolest bars you'll ever go to. Because it's an old hotel. The lobby has been restored perfectly. Very high ceilings, a lot of wood and stuff. Oh, I, well, I did write about the redoing of the lobby. Uh, but I, I, I'm not familiar with the Temple Court. I gotta yeah. try it out. Yeah. What about L.A.? Any, I go to L.A. pretty often. Any, any restaurants you recommend there? Oh, Los Angeles. You know, when I go to Los Angeles, I like to go to the classics because there's nothing like going and, and listen, as chefs, we have the luxury of I can call my friends, yeah, including yeah. big ones. And, and they'll roll out the carpet. And get it, and get it there. <laughs> we are the most generous people in the world. Yeah, yeah. The roll out the carpet, it's not about free. It's about being received yes. like you're better than the president was. Really. <laughs> because we, we're very close-knit. We're then not you, you give it back to them, too. Oh, and yeah. it's always give back. And, and it's not even that they want it back. It's just what we do. We all know how hard we work. And we all want to show each other what we're doing in our craft, right? Yeah. So, you know, if I get to town in L.A., I can call the guys at, you know, at Wolfgang Puck at uh, Spago. I can call the guys at Spago and say, I'd like to come tonight at 8 o'clock, and I want that round table in the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll give it and to me. And I'll, su- I'll, I'll probably get it, yeah. but I'll be surrounded by movie stars, power brokers, politicians, and the food is outstanding, of course, yeah. but it's a magical sort of thing. So, you know, it's places like that, places like going to the original Nobu, mm. right? You know, if you can get a seat, at that counter at the original Nobu, that's like, you know... I've been to that, yeah. the Nobu, yeah. It's like, you know, getting a seat at the table of the Last Supper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, any, like, because uh, these are all wonderful restaurants, and uh, any other, like, little hole-in-the-wall places that aren't as um, flashy or, or well-known? You know, and I apologize, no names come to, my, come to mind, but I look for them all the time, and I do travel often by myself, and I always search those out and fall into them. And I don't always record the names, um, but I find them everywhere. I found them, uh, I know I found a few in Atlanta, a uh, couple in Charlotte. I tell you what, I just found, I was up visiting my son, goes to college in Rochester. Okay. Who's gonna think that there's a great restaurant in Rochester? There was an outstanding restaurant called Good Luck. Good Luck. Terrific meal, excellent wine list. Okay. Fairly priced, treat you like gold. But casual. Servers are young, nice people wearing jeans and an apron and a white shirt. What'd you have? Just, uh, last time I was there, I had uh, probably had about four different of the appetizers because I do a lot of uh, crostini and uh, grilled vegetables. And then I had, uh, I think I had a, uh, I think I shared with my son maybe a cowboy ribeye. Nice. It was just delicious. And, it, and, and so the kitchen's in the middle. You see the kitchen is open, wood fire, See them cooking your food. They have an excellent wine list. I love great wine. Um, yeah. I drank the Prisoner. Okay. Do you know Prisoner? Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan, although Warren Swift doesn't own that winery anymore. His whole collection of, you know, uh, Prisoner, Machete, Papillon, Abstract. Abstract, by the way, best value for the money. Okay. Um, I love that whole Syrah Grenache based wine. It's mm. one of my favorites. We made our own wine at 81. Made We made our own blend oh, really? at 81 uh, uh, up in Santa Barbara with a great winemaker named Doug Marjoram. And uh, we made our own blend. We went there. I took my whole family with me as an experience. 
our sommelier who was working for me, and we worked an entire day on this blend, which I was very proud of. Uh, we should have made more. Ah. Uh, hmm. Well, I think that about does it. Good. I, I feel like I've told you a lot. I would say I, good luck to you, but I don't think you need it. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, I, I, do, I do wake up very early every day. I run my ass off and work for our business and for my, my team every day, and I go to bed late at night. And I'm working on the weekends, and I'm working in between, and, you know, I try to weave in a life in the middle of that. My kids are grown. Yeah. I'm a single person. I'm divorced several years ago. And so I don't have to, like, oh, i got to carve out time for my kids. Or, i got to car. i got to be home for my wife. I can weave them all together and just enjoy myself wherever I am, and that's how I have my personal life. But are, are there days off where you get a few more hours of sleep? Um, yeah, there's... There's some days where there's more time to sleep than others, for yeah. sure. Uh, but I'm never off. The switch is never off. Yeah. It can't be. I can't. We can't run a company this size well in a, in in a business that's all about it's it's a live show. Yeah. There's a live show every day somewhere in this country that I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. So it kind of keeps me up. <laughs> <laughs> so how how many hours of sleep do you get? I usually never sleep more than five. Would you recommend that for a chef starting out? Look, you got to, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said once, uh, sleep faster. Sleep yeah, faster. The early risers. My mom, my mom always says sleep fast. Right? <laughs> It'd be very late. I got to yeah. wake up early. Sleep fast. Um, or sleep when you're dead. Uh, but um, no, I don't really recommend it. Five hours is probably not very healthy. Yeah. But as you get older, I don't know if it's you need less sleep or we convince ourselves it's okay. But listen, it is what it is for me. I'm not, I don't say that to be successful, you can't sleep and you can't have stress. That's just my makeup. It's in me. I'm, I'm old school. All I know how to be is always on and I take the stress on me. I take the responsibility on me. I don't sleep enough. I don't eat well enough. I don't exercise enough. And all of that bothers me. And I, I'd like <laughs> to be doing more of all of those things, yeah. but it is what it is. I think that the generation after me is much smarter than me. And I think that they work smarter. All I know is how to work hard works for me. Well, thanks a lot, Chef Brown. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Enjoy that time.